Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Christine Bell. Christine Bell is the author of books for children and younger readers, and today she joins me to discuss her debut novel, No Small Shame. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'd love it if you could help me help others to discover great new Australian books and stories by giving us a rating and leaving a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. Your ratings help put Final Draft in front of more eyes in the podcast world and let more people know that we're out there. Today on the show... In 1909, in the mining town of Bothwellha in Scotland, Mary O'Donnell and Liam Merrilies promise each other that they will make something more of their lives than the tiny town has to offer. Four years later, and the families have emigrated to Australia and the equally small town of Wonthaggy. When Mary arrives, Liam is changed, no longer the carefree friend of their youth. So what remains of their dreams and what can they make of the promise that Australia has offered? Join me as we discover Christine Bell's No Small Shame. I am joined today by an absolutely, uh, like a fantastic new novel. I'm joined from Melbourne by Christine Bell. Christine has published widely books for children and younger readers, and today she's joining me to discuss her debut novel, No Small Shame. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It is an absolute pleasure, and I, I want to introduce the listeners to No Small Shame. It's 1909 in the small mining town of Bothwellha in Scotland. Mary O'Donnell and, Mer- and Liam Merrilies promise each other that they will make something more of their lives than the tiny town has to offer. Now, four years later, and the families have emigrated to Australia and the equally small town of Wunthaggy. When Mary arrives, Liam is changed, no longer the carefree friend of her youth. So what remains of their dreams and what can they make of the promise that Australia has offered? Now, Chris, I was hoping you could start by, by setting the scene for us. These may be places that, that sound familiar, um, but also, well, I mean, when we meet them, Mary and Liam, they're, they're children by today's standards, and yet they're staring down adult roles. Uh, they're about to take on in a world that does not offer much for the poor and, and for the Catholic. <laughs> Tell us about the world of, of Bothwellho and Wonthaggy. Well, Bothwell Hall was a very tiny mining village and most of the workers from the Hamilton Palace Colliery lived in the village of Bothwell Hall. I think it was only about 400 people. They were very poor and the housing was very poor. They lived in tenement rows and the two poorest of those were Store Place and The Square, which were actually both rows that my great-grandparents lived in and they had no indoor plumbing. They were one room with inset beds in holes in the wall and only the manager's um, housing had a scullery and perhaps, but none of them had a toilet back in those days. So they were... um, there was not much there in the village. There was a cooperative store. There was a state school. Any Catholics had to go two miles into Bothwell to the school. 
And when they came out to one thaggy, it would have been a lot. It was a very much a growing town, but there still wasn't much housing there. And there were four churches and the pubs were starting to come in, but there was not a lot there. There was very early days, but four years before that story, that one thaggy had started off as a tent town originally and everybody lived in tents but by 1913-14 there was a a lot more housing but still a severe housing shortage which is why the O'Donnells in the story had to live in a tent at the back of the Merrilees house. It's amazing to think we we flash forward a hundred odd years and a similar circumstance, um, you know, a mining town would be populated by fly-in, fly-out workers who had families across the country and were probably, uh, at least, you know, if we take it 100 years, so about a decade ago, were probably some of the better paid workers in Australia at the time. Um, What hadn't changed was the perception of, of how central to the economy mining was. And I guess that was part of the promise that... um, that both Mary and Liam had come out, that the Merrilees family and the O'Donnell family had come out to, to make something new in this, in this mining sector? Well, they, the promise was there of higher salary. The mines also in Wanthaggy, the mine in Wanthaggy was not nearly as deep as in Bothwell Hall, so it was going to be considered safer. But also the O'Donnell's, as did my great-grandparents, had lost several babies to the damp and diphtheria, whooping cough, and it was not a good environment to raise children or to live well for adults or children. So one thaggy in Australia promised a much better uh, environment climate-wise as well as in the mine, but it also was going to offer Liam a chance for a new beginning to try for a life outside the mine, which he wasn't going to get in the confines of Bothwell Hall. Yeah, and Liam has, I guess, what at the time would have seemed for his family, very grand dreams of making something more. I mean, there's such a contrast between the ways in which we view life and what it holds and and those of Mary and and Liam's world. The idea that uh, a young person today would decide they wanted to follow a particular career path is is not at all strange, but for Mary and Liam, and I mean, in, in Australia in 1914, the suffragettes had achieved some, but by no means all of the changes that they sought. Do, are we today, are we, are we a generation of privilege or, or have we rightfully broken free of some of those, those shackles that Mary and Liam struggled against? Look, I think to a large degree, we are very privileged because we have so many choices that they didn't have in those days. And people are are, are raised now with an expectation of happiness in their future to aspire to do whatever you can. Perhaps sometimes we go too far that everybody believes they can have everything they want and never stop to consider that a lot of these things are earned Sometimes there's resentment when people don't get to achieve all that our lifestyle offers today. But, um, yes, it's a hard balance between being told not to aspire to get above yourself and above your station and, and then to give people such a high ideal of what their life should be that when they're not achieving that, that can give people a great sense of failure 
and cause a lot of problems too, as we see. And it creates, yeah, and it creates so much of the the tension and um, and well, the what what gets struggled against in the novel that you are telling this story from Mary's perspective. We have so much also of Liam there, and they are young people. They are looking to their future and what it might offer. And for Mary and for Liam, Australia was meant to be full of promise. Um, of course, they find themselves in a country that's riven by the same prejudices that they had experienced at home, one that's also deeply conservative. Do you see these as perhaps kind of defining parts of our national character? I mean, the story is set some only a decade and a half after our federation and when we were, I guess, still very much making for ourselves an idea of what it means to be Australian. And I think that struggle of what it was to be Australian was quite difficult in those early years because I mean, it goes to, I suppose, a bit of the conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants when they went to war because the the Protestant faction was a lot more of empire, supporting the empire, whereas the the workers and the Catholics were very much the, the poor class workers were more about supporting the nation, the new nation. So there was a disparity there. But... Um, sorry, I've lost the beginning of the question now. <laughs> no, no, I guess we're just, I was just thinking about these depictions of, and uh, you're sorry, the depictions of what it means to be Australian. I, I, you reminded me also of a, a scene where we've moved from Wonthaggy where Mary is in Melbourne now and war has really uh, gripped the national consciousness. Mary is working in, uh, she's working making clothes and one of the women that she works with is leaving in tears and Mary finds out that it's it's because her surname is German and Mary makes the point that that she's got more right to be in the job than she has. Mary was born in Ireland and had emigrated to Scotland and then to Australia but uh, that was and still is a part of our I guess our national consciousness that we can commit these sort of um, I'm trying to think of a, a nice way to say it. very, very cack-handed ideas of national identity uh, that somehow we can dismiss someone who is born and has, uh, has lived in Australia based on some idea that they don't fit a particular national identity. Yes, well, Lizzie, or Lisa Lott, she was born in Australia, but her family came, came from Germany. So... And there was a growing sense of unease and, and dislike. And they were, I don't think they started off the war years with internment, but they certainly brought it in and, and people began to, to fear them. But I'm, there were people as in uh, Lizzie and Mary's boss who would have looked the other way because they had good employees who'd always been there and no real prejudice to put them off, but the prejudice was certainly here. I mean, there always has been with war, you know, like you couldn't call a, a German shepherd a German shepherd. It had to become an Alsatian, um, you know, things like that. Now, that may actually be the Second World War that that started, but there were still internment camps in Australia. There were still people who didn't want to work with Germans. And when you have that type of... Um, you know, the, the type of things that would have been in the newspaper every day, the resentment 
did build up. And it's so Mary interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting though that we can see that play out throughout the next century of our history, both the, the conservatism, but this sort of reactionary nature in, in the Second World War, the internment camps were being filled by Japanese Australians. Um, in the turn of our current century, when uh, the, the American, in scare quotes, war on terror was happening, uh, huge amounts of bigotry and prejudice were being directed at Muslim Australians. And now we're in the middle of COVID-19, where uh, certain people have decided that this, you know, has started in China. So uh, Asian Australians are suffering at the hands of these, these, again, very reactionary prejudices that don't often have a lot of founding in fact or the individuals that they're being prejudiced against? I think that uh, in times of trouble, it can, as we well know, bring out the best, bring out the worst, but yeah. people need someone to blame mm. and they look for someone to hate and they look for someone who's in their immediate vicinity to turn their aggression on. And I'd like to be magnanimous and, and, try and act as if it's you know um it's a fear thing but you know there is no condoning it i think it comes from a point of ignorance mm. and yes i i don't know why people have to do that and it's so fantastic in your depiction you mentioned the scene where lizzie is is turned out from her job and as you point out that her boss would have quite happily turned away but as the the sort of overused um, platitude goes, you know, the only thing it, it takes for, for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And that's one of those circumstances. And you, you very accurately depicted it would not have been realistic for him to have jumped up and somehow tried to be a hero, nor for Mary to do the same. They, they simply went along with what was happening. And that was what I wanted to show that this, this was type of thing would have been happening all over the country and today, you know, I think we often think we would stand up and we would protest against that and we wouldn't allow that to happen. But then we allowed dreadful things to happen during World War Two, and we've allowed the prejudice that's going on at the moment with the pandemic. You know, it's horrifying to see, but, you know, what are we doing about it, really, to mm. stop it? The individual isn't. Another aspect of this, this life and this chapter in Australia that you evoke are, I guess, roles and presentations of masculinity. And I mean, your depictions of masculinity really drive home the situation of life in regional Australia. The relationship between Winnie and Sloy, I'm going to call him Sloy because that name just, it just feels like his character, uh, is, is such an exemplar. What is important in these depictions and how far, how far can you go depicting a character like Sloy before you move beyond the realistic and into sort of almost like a caricature of villainy? I thought you, you did a really good job sort of skirting that line. Well, he's always been Sloy to me and the name was picked deliberately because of his character. I did have to rein back on him. There were other chapters that were written um, earlier that didn't make the final book, but where he does deteriorate. But the most important thing was to 
give him that past and I can I had provided the past that his parents had died when he was young and he lived with the drunken aunt but it was my editor that said to me I think we need to tease that out a little bit more to and it's it was only done in another two or three lines that was added to it but just it, it to give him a depth that because no one character is purely bad and if they are bad there's often a reason it doesn't exempt them from their behavior but I think for the reader if they can understand why a person has evolved the way they are they can at least have an understanding you can't have any empathy for a, a, a man like Sloy but um, I think it really helps make him a multi-dimensional character if you've mm. got more of where he came from to be the man he is absolutely i don't i don't mean to pick on him of course there are other depictions of masculinity that perhaps we'll get to but there that dynamic and that that section early in the book where mary is staying with winnie and sloy i i actually thought the book was about to take a very different turn at one point because you so beautifully tease out this this villainy and i thought there would be a plot that they would hatch alone sort of so far from town to, to almost steal uh, Mary's baby and and pretend it as their own and and make make Bertie sorry make Mary take care of Bertie anyway I feel happy telling people this in the interview because that's not what happens and in fact so much more unfolds um, well between you and me it did happen there were another two chapters right in the middle of the book where instead of um, more taking her away originally that was exactly what happened that they were going to keep the baby and etc but we ended up i ended up deciding it would come out because i wanted it to be that she went back with her mother mm. and it's and it because the sloys were not going to continue as a major part of mm. the novel I didn't want it to be drama for drama's sake. So it was done to get the threads of Moore and Mary's relationship working in a more cohesive way to work towards their climax at the end, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. I do. That would have, that would have been a, a terrific, that, that, that would almost be sort of a psychological horror that you'd written and that could have been its own book. Um, <laughs> when yes, it threatened to take off in that way, so which is why it had to be reined back to. Uh, yes, dear listener, you are um, you are tuning into to final draft, where where Chris Christine Bell and I are talking about uh, no small shame as it doesn't actually exist. We're talking about a completely different novel that didn't uh, make publication. So let's let's come back to <laughs> the actual story of no small shame, because one thing that also you very much interested me in is the way that gender roles they almost seem to be to be weaponized uh, in this period to control. The younger characters we see mary is constantly being held to standards of propriety and religion that male characters and i'm thinking of liam here seemingly they don't have to meet or if they they, they they're not they have more freedoms um to work within them and then also uh in the white feather movement a bit later in the movie where we see women turning masculinity against men who do not enlist can you explain a little bit about what, what the white feathers are and, and the ways that these roles were enforced at the time? 
Well, the white feathers were put into either envelopes and given to men or they were put posted to them and they were represented cowardice and they were sent to men who had not enlisted and they were sent to my character Tom and he had a physical disability that he couldn't enlist because he suffered from severe asthma at different times of the year but it was an invisible disability so he looked for all intents and purposes like a strong male and it was why haven't you enlisted um and many men at that time they could have got gotten a um a special medal that said that they had tried to enlist that the, a badge rather that they could wear to show that they tried to enlist but they were rejected but you know pride stopped a lot of men from wearing that and there were various um women around the country who would either do the white send the white feathers or there was the particular poem that was in the book that they would present to men who hadn't who were wearing civilian clothes instead of the uniform with no regard to why they may not have enlisted or what was keeping them there because some people were in essential industries that needed to be here too which is why the miners were going to be exempt from enlisting because they were performing an essential service. It's such, it's such an interesting thing that we, again, see reverberations of these attitudes continue throughout. I mean, we've heard it on the news, but also anecdotally, I know of, of people who are health workers. I'm a, I'm a work in allied health myself, and, um, but I get to wear normal clothes, but I've heard of health workers who wearing their scrubs um, on their way to work or otherwise get disparaging looks and get strange looks in this COVID-19 time because of a perception um, that, that never goes beyond the surface, um, but that get, gets reacted to. And um, it seems, uh, yeah, it's, again, the adage of um, the more things change. Human nature is the same regardless, and people look for something to judge and something to have an opinion about and something to react to. And in times of crisis, they often need to feel that they're doing something. Um, I'm sure the women who were sending the white feathers felt that they were doing important work to mm. guilt men into going. But as often is the case, people only look at with a very narrow view and mm. they don't see the whole, um, picture or consider anything beyond that tunnel vision. And the white feathers were used to enforce a standard of, of masculinity and behavior for men. For Mary, however, religion is constantly brought to bear. Her, her more is, um, is always reminding her uh, of her fallen state. But for Mary, her, her perseverance and the way she, she just carries on. I mean, of course, it's easy to say, well, she had no choice. What, what could she do but to carry on? But some of the things that she achieves would actually have been quite radical at the time. What, what sense do you have of, of Mary as a, as a character being either typical or radical? I think that she was typical Catholic as in trying to obey 
the church and a, and a typical daughter of the time who tried to obey her mother, she was, would have been radical to have left home with the baby. And it did worry me for a while that that was a, a huge thing to do. But at every point that she did make some of those decisions, she did have the backup of other people in so much as she went to Melbourne um, not on her own and she went to Pearl's house direct and she was taken there. So, but it was still a radical decision to make, to leave her family. But I think that in those days, there were many young women then in the same situation, they would have been thrown out of the house. I've heard of multiple occasions where that happened. You know, if you were fallen, you were, you were gone and you and that child were not welcome in the house. So I think that she was, she was neither one nor the other. I think she was, had the radical in her. She, she was so powerless being so young and Catholic and poor that she didn't have the, the power to grab her agency in a greater way, but that was part of what I was trying to show that there were women had these ideas of independence and that what was unfair and what wasn't, but they had to work very carefully towards it or they were thrust into a situation where they had to react like Mary did. Yeah. She knew she would not be able to raise that baby her way if she stayed there. And so of course we come to, and we cannot help but acknowledge the times that we live in um, because Mary muses at one point in the book or probably to herself but many times that her expectations were of a very different world um, and one of the one of the cataclysmic events of course is the war uh, she could not have imagined a few years earlier the the changes that would be wrought um, and we're in a similar situation right now with COVID-19 I think many people only a few months ago imagined a world very differently. What would you say that Mary has to teach us about the necessity and the ways of responding to radically changed circumstances? I think that she had a, a patience to wait and see and to look at the bigger picture before she did react to things. And I think she tried to explain that to Liam when he first came she first came out to Australia and he was so unhappy being back down the mine that, you know, can you just put up with this for a while because things are bad now. There's no jobs down in Melbourne. There's no jobs out of the mine, but it won't always be like that. It's temporary. And I think that she can teach us that, you know, even when the greatest adversity happens, it doesn't last forever. There's always been wars, there's always been unemployment or there's always been a famine, something out there that throws the world into disarray. But we just have to keep working towards getting back to normality and a little bit of acceptance as well as trying is really needed because we can't rebel against something totally if we can't change it, if, we, if it's got to work its course. And I think that's what Mary teaches us. And perhaps also that Mary could not even possibly be aware of, but that we are, is that um, her normal 
after the war and in the years to follow. And, and Connor, her, her child's normal, um, will be very different. And that's, that's something we can't predict. But uh, any reflection on, uh, on these times past the First World War um, shows us that uh, a, very different, a very different future is there to unfold. It is, and there'll be lots of changes after this too, but it doesn't mean that they'll all be bad. It's mm. got the potential then to change things that need changing. And there are a lot of better changes for women after the war, though, you know, it was not radical here in Australia because things, a lot of things went back to normal, but they never go totally back to normal. The potential for change is awoken then. Mm. These reflections on our on our present are coming from our re my reading of, of Christine Bell's No Small Shame. Christine has been joining me to discuss No Small Shame. Chris, thanks so much. Uh, it's been really fascinating. This is this is a period of history that um, I think is so formative for Australia. So it's wonderful to have a chance to explore it in your wonderful book. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Christine Bell. Christine's debut novel is No Small Shame, and it's out now through Ventura. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app. It means you'll get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.